Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Mark, I have a stack water you'll be pleased to hear. I'm up for it. Try me. And you remember last week we were talking about that unique little window in 1967 where just about every British pop group suddenly decided that they should go a little bit psychedelic and wear oh, yes. flat, flowered shirts and you yes, know, make, yes, make, yes. make different kinds of records. And so during that year, that's Annus Mirabilis Psychedelicus, um, just about everybody made a kind of concept album or a psychedelic record. And I want you to tell me which of these five didn't actually happen, okay? So four of these are real albums that came four out. Four of these are real albums that came out in 1967. Are they by groups that were previously pop groups or just any group at all? You you will understand. Okay. Go through this list. The first is the Hollies made an album called Evolution. Evolution. Yep. And to give you an idea of flavor of it, uh, two of the tracks were called Rain on the Window and Ye Old Toffee Shop. <laughs> you can imagine this, can't you? Ye Old Toffee Shop. Yeah, so, okay, cool. so that's the first one Hollies Evolution. And the second one is the Trogs. Made an album called Cellophane. Cellophane. And a couple of the tracks from that are Butterflies and Bees and the Reg Presley song, My Lady. You see, that was one of the things that happened in 1967. They no longer had girlfriends. They had ladies. ladies. They had amazing ladies. Amazing actually, ladies. To give them their full title. Okay. So number three. Number three, Herman's Hermits. Made an album called Blaze. We started with the Donovan song Museum and also had a song composed by members of the Hermits called Moonshine Man. Moonshine Man. That's good. Number four. Number four. The Shadows. Jigsaw. The Shadows Jigsaw, which contained their versions of semi-detached suburban Suburban Mr. James and Winchester Cathedral. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the final one. 
Jerry and the Pacemakers put out an album called In Colour, In Colour, and it contained their versions of Purple Haze and Fanlight Fanny, the frowsy nightclub queen. Okay? So those are your five. You've got to tell me which of those five is not real. That's, that's really good. Um, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to eliminate them and say that the Hollies evolution, I think that existed because I'm sure I remember that actually. Um, Herman's Hermit's Blaze, I'm prepared to accept. Uh, the Shadows, I like the idea of Jigsaw because they would do a psychedelic, vaguely psychedelic instrumental version of Winchester Cathedral. Um, cellophane is just a ludicrous name for a record, but I think in this context, the trogs may well have gone for it. I, I, to be honest, I think it's Jerry and the Pacemakers, because the idea of them doing you... <laughs> I can see you on the Zoom here, and that smile indicates that I've I've walked into your trap. But I think Jerry the Pacemaker's in colour doing purple haze is absolutely unimaginable. Go on. You're correct. You're oh, correct. okay. Oh, I, good. I made that one up. The other no, four that's good. the other four are real. Jerry and the Pacemakers never sadly recorded the version of Purple Haze. And uh, you know, but anyway. You did no, well. That was a bridge too far, but uh, it is astonishing to think the rest. It's the trogs, particularly. The trogs. And the, everything I, I, I think about uh, as regards to the trogs, I, I think in terms of the trogs tapes. And just, can you hear the? Can you hear those voices? <laughs> a bit of fucking fairy dust on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Oh dear. So That's good. Uh, yes, this week. Uh, this week, change your gear. The death of Sinead O'Connor. But meet Sinead O'Connor. I did briefly once when we were doing Old Grey Whistle Test in Northern Ireland in 1987, I think. Uh, and she was, I think, supporting somebody or other. I can't remember who now. I did meet her briefly. Yeah, oh, right. quite a complicated person, I have to say. Right, right. Not immensely warm, but uh, but extremely fascinating. It's, uh, it, it's, I don't know very much about her at all. Um, the, the bits I've read suggests that it's a bit of a sad personal story. Um, you know, a lot of, lot of heartbreak. There, oh, a lot there? of heartbreak. Very complicated. And I think, I think one of the reasons she wasn't written about hugely, actually, in the last few years was because she did seem quite a, well, slightly colder, she but a very complicated person. It wasn't a, it wasn't a warm enough story for people to want to, to revisit. But the thing that really, uh, really caught my eye among the enormous number of eulogies was Morrissey's broadside which you you saw too didn't you which was absolutely amazing and uh, morrissey i mean it's extraordinary you know that uh, you know all the things she, i think most of the reaction has been about what she stood for rather than what she recorded actually mostly it's people talking about her ripping up the picture of the pope on saturday night live in 1992 and of course has subsequently been proved very much right about uh, the, her, uh, her, her comments about the uh, sexual abuse to the Catholic Church, etc. But it's completely skewed her career. I forgot that Joe Pesci went on Saturday Night Live the next week and said that if she'd done that on the show that he'd been presenting, he would have slapped her. And he got applause for this. I mean, it's mm. astonishing, isn't it? Mm. But, I mean, that was a career. That was a, 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 very much like the Dixie Chicks and, and Jerry Lee Lewis. It was a moment that kind of pretty much ended her career in, in America. But, um, but Morrissey, 
fired off this broadside and he said, I'm going to quote you, he says, there is a certain music industry hatred for singers who don't fit in. And this I know only too well. Oh, never praised who are you talking about him? I know, I know. And they are never praised until death when finally they can't answer back. The cruel playpen of fame gushes with praise for Sinead today with the usual moronic labels of icon and legend. You praise her now only because it's too late. You hadn't the guts to support her when she was alive and she was looking for you. Who cared enough to save Judy Garland, Whitney Houston, Amy Winehouse, Marilyn Monroe, Billy, uh, Billy Holiday? I mean, it's, it's classic Morrissey. In fact, it's classic Twitter in some extent. So then he sounds like he's supporting someone and actually he's having a go at somebody else. Yes, is, absolutely. He's obviously uh, uh, the, the, the rock critic fraternity. But actually, I have to say, I think Morrissey's got a really good point. I think he's got a really good point because people only tended to support her and write about it when, uh, at the time that she was doing and releasing the things that she was saying and, and, and recording. And uh, now I think a lot of those people are wanting to, it's very self-positioning, isn't it? They're wanting to be associated with her and seeming, being seen to, to approve of her and support her. But, I mean, it tends to be the case that if you're not in the public eye, then you don't get written about, you know. And in her case, the last record, I looked at like the last record she made was, uh, she wrote, How About I Be Me and You Be You in 2012, and one called I'm Not Bossy, I'm the Boss in 2014. And so there hasn't been much since then. And there's been no excuse for people to reevaluate it. Normally there's a box set, something, you know, everyone goes, mm. Hang on a second, this person was incredibly significant. Or, um, you know, there's one of those pieces where people just look at the most influential people of the 80s or 90s or whatever. And I don't think there's been very much there. And also, I'm not sure that she's that much played on the radio. Everyone was talking in the obituaries about her wonderful cover version. She did a, a, an album in 1992 called uh, Am I Not Your Girl, full of uh, kind of classic American songs. Do you remember that record? I Want to Be Loved by You, Why Do You Right, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. But I, I actually don't think, I mean, they may have been technically quite good, but I, I never got the impression those things were constantly being replayed on the radio, that, that people were keeping the idea of her alive. And I think that, uh, you know, unless you're active, you know, you just, the excuse to write about somebody and reevaluate them, just disappears something. I tell you, the, the thing that struck me yesterday um, is that, you know, prior to social media, you know, when prominent people died, they, you know, there would be like 10 obituaries. You know? Yeah. They would be written by people in the newspapers or somebody on the, on the telly or whatever. Now it's the, it's the sport everybody can take part in. Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> And and there's a great haste to kind of advertise advertise your feelings about this. Yeah. About these things. Well, you know, not just the you know, so it goes beyond saying, Well, I always liked so and so or I always liked this record. But that doesn't sound it. like enough. Does it doesn't it? sound enough. People suddenly feel that they're being they must they've got to crank it up. I'll tell, well, tell you what the word is that I uh, that 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 uh, it started to become a real issue with me is that people routinely, routinely describe themselves as devastated yeah. by the death of a singer or an actor or a footballer or anybody devastated. This is a person you've never met. You know yeah. what I mean? If you say you're devastated by that, how would you possibly deal with the, you know, the bereavements that we all yeah. you know, go through in our lives and people genuinely close to us? You know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I just feel this 
this way of talking about these things is kind of cheapening, you know, our feelings about humanity, you know. And, uh, and Morrissey's thing is, as you say, it's purports to be protective, defensive, you know, they're, they're putting, her arm, putting his arm around the legacy of Sinead O'Connor. But really what he's doing is putting the boot in to the people he really liked to put the boot in on, you know, it's the kind of savagery that comes out with these things, you know. And uh, I know there's an obituary in the in the Guardian of all places, uh, which must have been written. I don't know whether it was. It's very often obituaries are written some while before they actually appear. Um, but that's caused a great deal of ire. <laughs> I saw that too, and actually, I went back and reread it. I read it. I thought it was fine. I mean, all it was doing I didn't was pointing think I, out there were a couple yeah, of things yeah. that were, you know, she didn't do things that were in her best interest. But in this particular kind of um, white hot situation, you know, nobody will accept anything that's even remotely critical. I mean, I do understand that, but it's just difficult. But I thought that Guardian thing was okay, actually. Yeah, it's just it's it's a. Yeah, it's a kind of binary medium, isn't it? You've either got to be completely for it or completely against it. You know yeah, you I mean? can't come in and say, well, I'm, I'm just sorry to hear that. There's this no happened. shades. No, no, there's no shade in the middle. You've got to be absolutely mortified, you know. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's a sad, a sad old story, though, it has to be said. Oh, I watched great. the, um, yeah. I, I think you might have seen it too. I watched the, the footage of her at the Bob Dylan. 1992, uh, 30th anniversary. And, and anybody's not seen it. It's worth seeing it. It's extraordinary. Because this was two weeks after she tore up the picture of the Pope, which caused an absolute outlaw and drawing attention, you know, child abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so she goes on stage. Chris Christopherson brings her on stage at the Dylan concert and she's meant to perform. I think it was I Believe in You. And it is worth watching because for about two minutes, she just stands there waiting for these boos and these, this kind of this very aggressive reception to die down. And it doesn't die down. And then she goes into a kind of half-sung, half-spoken, kind of improvised version of Bob Marley's uh, War. You know, until the philosophy which hold one race superior and another race inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war, etc. I mean, it's just gripping, isn't it? And Christopherson comes on and whispers in her ear. What he actually said was, "Don't let the bastards grind you down." And she turned to them, uh, turned to him, and said, "I'm not down." So it's it's just it's an electrifying it's an electrifying um, moment and. Uh, you know, I can see why I can see why people felt very strongly about her. She did a lot of very unconventional things. Yeah, yeah. And also this week, the the death of the rather less legendary Randy Meisner of the Eagles. Yeah. Which is, if you look into it, that is an extraordinary story. His you know, he let, when did he leave the Eagles? Seventy six. He left in seventy seven. I mean, he was there. He was part of the original group with the, the backing band for Linda Ronson. And he wrote it? things like "Take to Take, take to the Limit" and sang the the, the the high part on that, the main vocal. You know, he, I mean, he must have made sufficient money out of that to have never worked again because he almost didn't work. He again. almost didn't work. Again. I mean, I looked again. I just had a quick look at that. Yeah, he died and uh, of, 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 of a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. 
and uh, he'll obviously be ill for a long time. And left the Eagles in '77 because he was just so exhausted by it all. Also, had a massive falling out with. But also shy. Yeah, really yeah, shy. shy. Didn't want see, to be in the spot. You see, I think I think this is quite yeah. interesting. You know that um, you know being a being a professional musician can be a rough old life. Yeah. Being a f- really famous professional musician can be an even rougher old life, actually. Yeah. You know, because if you if you're you know if you don't have to deal with massive public attention, that's relatively easy, isn't it? Dealing yeah. with with the you, you've got to have a you've got to have a thick skin to survive, don't you? You've yeah, had this really conversation do. many times before in the light of you know. My favourite example of this is Richard Thompson, Nick Drake, and John Martin, all roughly the same age, all yeah. roughly the same kind of background. You know what I mean? And Richard Thompson just found a way to deal with it. Yeah. The other two never really did, you know. Um, you know, some people just have a survivor's instinct about yeah, it. Yeah, they do. And, and, and other people just don't. And Randy Meister is obviously... You know, been in bands for a while, and then suddenly the band he was in, the Eagles, was suddenly enormous. And uh, and there's one stage when they were doing some concert, and uh, they did two encores, and then Glenn Fry wanted them to go out and do another, and Randy Meister wouldn't do it because it was just too much for him. You know? <laughs> Couldn't deal with the with the attention, you know, and then pretty much left the group after. They, they fell out, didn't they? Yeah, which is extraordinary. He was frozen out of the group. Actually, they they, they just wouldn't talk to him. You really? Oh yeah, that's and, a horrible uh, story. And then you know, and then the rest of his life marked by you know. Well, the two interesting things happened, didn't they? Two very odd things. Oh, One was God. the thing about the imposter. Did you follow that? Oh no, go on. Oh yeah, at one stage there was an imposter impersonating Don Henley. Racking up huge bills, this and the other. This guy was arrested. He was put on bail. He jumped bail, and he reappeared a month later, doing exactly the same thing, but now impersonating Randy Meisner, who I suppose was less recognisable. Yeah, it yeah. might have been easier. I don't know. Actually, he did look quite like Randy Meisner. I saw a picture of him. You know, so he was conning shops and hotels and conning women, apparently, which gives you some indication of the uh, aphrodisiac power of being a rock star. That twenty years after the event, he pretended to be Randy Meisner. Women were apparently floored by this. And uh, and conning uh, musical instrument manufacturers. I mean, that's a bizarre story. But the other story, which is just, oh, it's very sad and complicated. Oh, and God. just, again, an indication of just how you cannot predict the way life, people's lives are going to turn out. That his wife, his second wife, I think it was, died in an accident in 2016, taking a rifle case down from a shelf in one of the rooms in their house. And inside the rifle case, he somehow had been put a pair of spurs from uh, his uh, cowboy boots, and she tilted this thing, and it slid down the case and knocked into the hair trigger, and the gun inexplicably was loaded, and the gun went off and, and, and killed her. I mean, why you would pack away a rifle that was loaded, I have no idea. Why, indeed, would you have a rifle in the first place? I don't know. It's a complicated story. But that's that. And this guy must have, I mean, he really, since 1982, has done virtually nothing at all. He really he joined Poco again. He was a member of Poco, wasn't he? Yeah, but otherwise, I mean, living on the presumably still absolutely colossal royalties from from the Eagles. And just uh, on something else about Morrissey, actually. So I'm just going to mention this. We talked about Morrissey earlier. It's trying me. It's really fascinating how quickly people's reputations can change. You know, Morrissey in 2006 there was a TV 
program about, um, you know, the, the, the greatest living British icon voted by BBC viewers 2006. So what is that? 17 years ago. How, how, where do you think Morrissey finished up? In that? Oh, was he high? It, he was second. <laughs> he was second. So was David first? Attenborough was first. <laughs> Morrissey was second. <laughs> Who was third? Yes, Paul McCartney. So Morrissey was above, for BBC viewers, above Paul McCartney <laughs> in the greatest living British icon. And, you know, you may not be aware of this, but Morrissey in the last couple of weeks has been touring this country. I bet you've got no indication that, that happened. No. I just had to be following something on social media and someone had said something about it and saying how wonderful he was. And, and I looked at the replies to this and, of course, the usual amount of bile. But Morrissey has toured Britain very, very recently to great success, to just absolutely adoring crowds. And yet we've heard nothing about it. No, the, yes. It just goes completely quiet. Isn't it extraordinary? I suppose it probably depends, although it's a bit... You know, social media, if it's your major source of information, which yeah. it increasingly is, you know, it's kind of yeah. self-fulfilling thing, isn't it? You know, yeah. That if you happen to follow loads of people who are Morrissey fans, you probably would be aware of that stuff. And if you yeah. don't, you wouldn't be, you know, it's all... Um, you know, it depends on your on your particular... But normally I think you'd see reviews in papers, you're just hearing about it, you'd be aware it was going on. But it's not, it's closed down to just hardcore Morrissey fans and nobody else has commented on it. So that's extraordinary. So it, it was number, is. number two in the crisis. I number two, number two. If they did that poll again tomorrow, where I would be? Don't I don't know. think you would be. Not very there. high. Not there at all. So what else has happened? Well, Oppenheimer. Oppen Our film's too long. Oppenheimer's three hours long. Have you been? I haven't been. No, I'd really like to go. I'd like to see that. I'd really like to see Barbie too. I think they're both, they're both suffer. Barbie, just everybody who's saying it's absolutely fantastic. I'm sure it is. Yeah, I'd love to see it. But Oppenheimer's three hours. Mark Billingham, our old pal, tweeted yeah, yeah. a really good point about it. So if, uh, if movies are so expensive to make, why are they making them so long? You know, surely it would make saving millions and millions of dollars. I, but they're not interested. Film. You see, if you're, if you're making Oppenheimer, you're not interested in making it cheaper at all. No, no, <laughs> no. Because no, really. the whole deal is it's huge, you know. Yeah. So scale becomes, you know, it, it stands in for loads of other things, doesn't it, really? Yeah. You know, if you do something long enough, it seems really important. And, uh, you know, I've... Uh, you know, it's like, and also the thing about long things, I think, is that once something's three hours long, the need for it to have any kind of narrative coherence has completely gone. Yeah. Because nobody, so nobody at the end of three hours is possibly remembering anything that happened three hours earlier. You know, it's it's just been overtaken by, you yeah. know, a succession of uh, of experiences. And sensations. Whereas if you watch, I tell you what, I watched last night, my birthday treat. <laughs> you sat on the sofa in the afternoon uh, with a cup of tea and watched The Taking of Pelham 123. Oh, great film. Walter yeah. Matter, 1974. Fantastic, yeah. basic thriller set in the New York subway system where Robert Shaw and a bunch of henchmen yeah, yeah, yeah. hijack a subway train and, and get a million dollars out of the city. And but the point about that film is it it's kind of an hour and a half or whatever, and therefore you, I could sit down and I could write the plot for it now. I could probably do that yeah. from memory. 
You, I bet you can't do that with Oppenheimer or any film that's three hours long. You know, it's, it, it's kind of episodic. I, I don't think you can. I've got a couple of theories. About it. One is that that I think long form TV is, has has uh, informed this. Is that oh. is that feature filmmakers now think they wish they could have just more opportunity to explore characters than they would in the normally abbreviated ninety minute version. But the other thing I think is that it's just like what you were saying is that if you here's a statistic. Here's the thing. I found a, a piece in in Variety this morning, and it was saying. Uh, the most of the highest-grossing films in history fall between two and three hours long, uh, and only one Oscar Best Picture winner, which was Annie Hall, comes in at just about an hour and thirty minutes. So that I think indicates two things: that to the to the consumer, length uh, indicates kind of to some extent substance, but certainly value for money. <laughs> but to critics, it's 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 stature and importance. Isn't it? If you look at those big films, look, Titanic, Avatar, okay. and Jurassic your, World, what, Lord of the Rings, Spider-Man, Gone with the Wind, Dave, three hours, 58 minutes, Lawrence of Arabia, nearly four hours, Ben-Hur, three and a half hours. And what were you, when you look down the list of the best picture films of all time, winners in the Oscars, yep. what do they pretty much all have in common? What, what, what category of films do you never find? Well, you never find comedies. You never find comedies. And comedies are by their by their nature quite short because they're trying to yeah. keep you amused. Yeah, which and you can't do for three hours. Don't go on too long. Yeah, Whereas you can't drama, oh, I can't bring it on. Just yeah, 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 yeah. more and more stuff. You know, Act Six, Act Seven. You know, I watched The Irishman. You know, the the Scorsese thing. You know, from which is also extremely long. Isn't it? It's just ridiculously long, and I watched it t- twice. And I really, and I kind of quite enjoyed it, but I haven't a clue what it's supposed to be about, really. You know, can I write down what that was? Not really. You know, can I tell you who all the characters were? Not really at all. It's too much for you to hold in your head. The story isn't the point of that. The point of that is just it's just being in the company of these people and the way they speak and the way they communicate. Don't you think? Uh, I it's suppose the, it's I the suppose. exchanges between them. Yeah. Talking of. Uh, of a wonderful um, visual entertainment. Further to our recent um, um, strand of t- looking at old slice of life documentaries about rock bands who never made it, under which umbrella we've uh, we've already met. Rainier, Rainier, <laughs> the, the you know the psycho the the progressive yeah. band who didn't make it, and uh, Punch. Punch. Who were uh, they're on the kind of cabaret on the working men's club circuit in in the mid seventies? Um, Shane Pacey sent me a link to um, a group called well, it's a documentary uh, connected with an Australian group called Hush. This was a completely new one on me, and then this film, which is quite a, quite a serious kind of. Half hour properly oh, done was. the film, wasn't it? Really, yeah. Um, and it's they're filming this Australian group called Hush, who had a, I think, had a couple of hits in Australia in 1976. And they're on tour, they're on a, a three month three month tour, tour. by 90 days, three months tour of Australia. Now, this was news to me because I didn't realize it was possible to do a three-month tour of Australia. I don't think it would be any longer, really. You know, 
because it starts with a lorry, uh, you know, driven by the radies, pulling out of what the voiceover describes as one nameless outback town in order to drive 300 miles to another nameless outback town, which is, I thought, an extraordinary thing, really. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In, in, a, in a voiceover, you know, they don't normally do that kind of no, thing. They, they, don't. they normally say whatever the name of the place is. But they were doing three months of, you know, one-nighters in where they turn up in these small communities and every young person, everybody under the age of 20... Would it was the only show in town, and, wasn't it? Completely the only show yeah. in town. Uh, and the and the members of Hush would uh, you know regale them, uh, and the members of Hush kind of uh, what were they like? They're like a cross between sweet and kind of. They're kind of actually they're kind of glam, and it seems yeah. bizarre because a they're Australian and b this is 1976 or 1977. There they are clambering into their huge stack heeled scarlet knee high boots <laughs> and capes, absolutely you know, looking absolutely absurd. But no, they're playing and playing not very good covers of Glad All Over by the Dave Clark Five. So it's it's it doesn't seem that thrilling to us. But that's how starved people are for entertainment. Absolutely. And what this film focuses on really is less the group than the road crew. It's the roadies, yeah. And it's basically about, you know, what a what a cruel and difficult life it is being being a road manager. You think? Because, because uh, you know, they're not getting rich out of it at all, you know, and it basically focuses on these guys and say, why do you do this? But also, don't you think it's clever the, the way the tone of the film changes? Because it starts off with the voiceover. The voiceover is the classic kind of voiceover. This is an Australian voiceover. Yeah. It's all kind of the kaleidoscopic props to bend the kids' minds as well as their ears. Since <laughs> some, some of the audience will dance, the more courageous fans will shout or swoon. 
And uh, and there's a lovely bit where he says he's got a picture of these cheeky girls nursing big glasses of wine. And it says, having gained the refuge of the motel, selected fans are allowed to come a little closer. And then he says, this is the key point, the key change in the movie. He says, uh, the teenage fans are entranced by the surface glamour and they would yes. give anything for a roadie's <laughs> job. And then it changes, doesn't it? It says, actually, do you know what? This is really grim. And these guys go, well, it is quite hard. And you discover that, oh, yeah, there's another brilliant clue where it says that, I don't know if you notice this, he says that, that Hush said our experts on efficiency. They were a five-piece band, but they sacked the fifth yeah. member as they realised that one more person to feed the less hotel money. room was going to be costing them money. So they're doing all this with only four. I mean, it's just amazing. And so then this picture emerges that after each gig, you know, the members of Hush, uh, still in their terrible stacky and scarlet boots, are, are entertaining uh, the lucky, lucky ladies and drinking the wine and having their, their Chinese banquets. And the roadies are piling all the gear into a lorry and setting off at two o'clock, at one o'clock in the morning to drive to the next town across the outback, you know. And you discover they're being paid, how much is it? One dollar an hour. It's not a lot. I was interested, there are three of them, I think. Yeah, and then the the third one the introducer said he's the old hand. He's you know he's a veteran of the yeah. European rock circuit, and he's twenty nine. Yeah, and I thought, my goodness, that gives you an idea of how things have changed because I don't think you find many twenty nine year olds roadieing nowadays. No, you wouldn't. You know, they're all lifers, aren't they? You know what yeah. I mean? They're a totally different breed of people. But it's. Uh, no, it's really worth seeing because it's got a genuine, genuine tang of 1976. Oh, it has, and you want them to, you want the interviewer to go back to the band and put it to them and say, you know, it's a proper piece of journalism and say, do you feel bad about exploring yourself? And they sort of do. They do. And the band go on about the fact that actually the road has got bigger bigger egos, and they want to be rock stars themselves. The, who are the people throwing the TV sets out of the windows and getting us in all this trouble? It's not us, it's the roadies, you know. So that's their defence. But I did think it was amazing, and it made me think that, you know, if that kind of thing was to be happening today, that would be the subject of a kind of industrial tribunal, don't you think? Yeah, People are being sued for, for gross exploitation. Yeah, yeah. So contrast that with that picture I sent you. Uh, Pulp have recently finished a UK tour. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they, they published on social media just a shot of, the, of all the team yeah. involved in the show. On the shows, the tour, uh, just say, you know, successful tour, thanks very much to everybody kind of thing. And I just thought it was really interesting because it reminded you just of how many people are involved in this kind of show. I counted 57 people in that. Oh, well, that, uh, got, uh, good. Okay, it was, it was, it was I a lot. I think it's 57. 57. I, I don't know how many of those were part of the touring entourage because some of them would be accountants and business people, I guess. Okay, but, but they, 57 they, people that were You see, they probably the are part of the touring organisation yeah. nowadays because that was the interesting thing about seeing that alongside having watched the documentary about Hush during the outback in 1977. Yeah. You know, the scale of, of, of a production nowadays because... It, obviously, you got the band. You know, let, let's work it out who was there. I mean, we don't know, but you can get you can work it out from what you know about how bands function. Yeah, you know, all the all the, the, the there'll have been a drum roadie, there'll have been a bass roadie, won't there? Yeah, all, that, all specific people. There are people doing the back lights, line, the, sound, yeah. lights, sound people. 
carrying things in and out, you know, there would be security. There will be, you know, people driving the band back and forth. There will be merch. There will be, you know, as you said, accountancy services. There might be a doctor on these kind of things as well. You know, if you, how many people do you say you got? 57. 57. That's a lot of people, you know. It's incredible. And it's just, I thought it was quite interesting because, you know, people talk about ticket prices and they, oh, you know, I paid 50 quid or 100 pounds or whatever. And there's only four of them. They must be making a fortune. Yeah. Well, twenty-five percent each. Yeah, it's not really like that at well, all. Really like, no, it made me think. I was looking at this news story about Adele, and you know, Adele was going to play Las Vegas. It was called off because she didn't think the show was ready. And all that, and she started the show. And this is a residency uh, in, in Las Vegas at the Coliseum, and it's been very, very popular inevitably. And so she's extended. Now she's extended by thirty-four nights. Jesus and God. you start thinking, this is a business model that must be very, very attractive. Oh, it's because for 34 nights, they sell just over 4,000 tickets a night. Do you know how much these tickets cost? Cheapest ones are 800 quid. Uh, the most expensive are around 4,000 quid. So I, I worked out that she's making 8 million. The net is 8 million a night. You mean the gross? The gross. The gross, the gross. The gross, right? the gross is 8 million a night. So that's roughly 270, 280 million, maybe call it 300 million for the entire run. But they don't have to travel anywhere. But they don't have to do anything. They simply close up the venue and they open it up at four o'clock the next afternoon and check it all out again. Nobody's got to move anything. No one's got to change anything. It's just all there. You don't have to. All the people who are doing all the traveling are the people coming to you. No, absolutely. That, that business model must be very, very attractive now. Don't you think? Well, it always has been, hasn't it? You know, because yeah. Vegas was. It was started to do that, and it used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It used to be people in tuxedos, you know, um, you know, people in tuxedos on stage. Yeah, and, and then people in the best suits turning up um, to see them, whether it was Dean Martin or Sammy Davis or Liberace or whatever. Yeah, and now it's you know, um, now it, it's yeah, because what changed Vegas? It seems to me was Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, probably. The, 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 the introduction of whole new levels of spectacle. Yeah. And therefore, if you've got to provide spectacle, you need venues that allow you yeah, to provide spectacle. Yeah, but that was spectacle, spectacle that was so complicated. I saw spectacle at Solid, yeah. actually. I went to it. That's I saw it. There. Yeah, did you? Yeah. Well, yeah not I in Vegas. I saw Cirque Soleil in the Albert Hall. You know, this must be 20 years ago nowadays. But it was, it, it was, it's one of those things. And it's quite interesting in that, and it indicates something about the changing nature of entertainment. That you go and see Cirque du Soleil, and I'm sure loads of people listening have been to see it one form or another. And what is it, really? Is it circus? Is it... Panto. Panto. <laughs> is it whatever? I don't know. Is it rock what, opera? What yeah. it is, mainly, is a spectacle. It's a spectacle. It's entirely it's a spectacle. spectacle. Because, and that's the interesting thing, is that what is it when, if you'd gone to see Elton John on his tour that's just finished, what is that? Is that music? Does anybody come away thinking, do you know, I really thought he did a really nice version of a guess, that's why they called it the blues. <laughs> you know, I like the piano sound. No, yeah. I don't, I wouldn't have thought they did that at all. What they come back, they, they're enthusing about, is just a spectacle. Yeah, it's it's the scale of the thing. 
Well, that's the thing. So I was out there interviewing Elton John, actually, in Las Vegas, and I went to that the next day because I just thought, I've got to go and see it, you know. And uh, not kind of my kind of thing, but what's, what I, I took away from that was it was so complicated, yeah. technically, that you couldn't tour it. Oh, you could couldn't you could. possibly oh, no. take the equipment that produced this kind of uh, scenery change and light movement and all that kind of stuff. You, you couldn't move it, you know. Um, so you could see why they were. it was a residency. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, go on, look at my notes in front of me here now. We haven't mentioned getting it straight in Notting Hill Gate. Did you manage to watch oh, that? Oh, I watched that. Yes, I did, yeah. Yeah. This is a documentary about Notting Hill Gate in 1967, featuring quintessence turning up at the end there, uh, doing their thing. And uh, and it's, um, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? Because that was the time when Notting Hill was full of hippies and, and poor people, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> Simple as that. It yeah. describes it as a cultural and racial melting pot, probably the, the world's first integrated ghetto, <laughs> is how they're, they're described, which is interesting because it was quite a posh place before and it's now a fantastically posh place subsequently. Incredibly that time, posh. At that yeah. time, you know, you've got Caroline Kuhn being interviewed in, the, interviewed in the release office, isn't she, talking about how awful it is that the fuzz keep busting us, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. Paddy wagons on patrol. You know, it's, it's really interesting. It's just interesting that areas of, of cities can just go up and go down and come back up again. That's- I do think I found slightly frustrating about it, the, the film, is that it focused on, on kind of the artists, you know, quintessence doing their thing and a poet doing his thing and, and you know, release and so forth. And that's all very well and good. But what you really wanted the camera to do is just linger in the street outside. Just want to see I want to see those people. I kept looking yeah. and thinking, that's a bit of Lottie Hill Gate I do recognise. Yeah, this is it. And it's been transformed. It, but it's also the great truth about the real swinging 60s that is never conveyed in the kind of Austin Powers version of it or whatever, is that, is that the dominant group on the streets were elderly people. Yeah, they were. With false teeth. Yeah, you know looking quite disapproving of the young Absolutely. folks busking. Going, how dare you? This is an imposition. It was, oh, no. it was poor old people. Because oh, you know, no. they were just there, you know. It wasn't a, it wasn't a kind of youthful pleasure zone. No, like, absolutely. Like it subsequently became, you know. But um, no, that's um, it's interesting to see. You know, oh, it so, is. You know, and if you've got any more tips for old slice of life documentaries with musical content, particularly, you know, if you find these things on YouTube, I know somebody was sending me the the link to the uh, the famous Cursal Flyers documentary from the mid 70s uh featuring uh, Paul Conroy and Will Birch, Will Birch and yeah. uh, in the back of a van and we'll no doubt get to get round to that in due course but if you've got any other suggestions anything you've found send it to us we we you know I, as i say i am planning in my head a weekend at the nft <laughs> look of great Screaming. Of all these little time capsule documentaries. Be really Absolutely. good. Absolutely. It'd be Lyrics really compulsory. Absolutely. Rare. So Dylan, Dylan's motorbike crash, Mark. Well, I'm just very interested in this because I'm interested in the idea of how slowly news used to travel. In fact, I was thinking this the other day because I was in Broadstairs in Kent a couple of days ago with a couple of mates on a cycle trip. And we were in Broad- Broadstairs was where the news 
of the Battle of Waterloo, the victory at Waterloo, the guy carrying the news had come from the battle site, which was in Belgium, I think, wasn't it? Belgium. Um, and arrived off the boat in Broadstairs and then rode that horse to London to tell them that we had won and Napoleon was defeated. And that, that took three days. It's, isn't it extraordinary? Three yes. days that news to get through. And in 1966, on we're recording this on the 28th of, uh, of July, on the 29th of July, 66, which seven years ago, was Dylan's motorcycle crash. And equally, the news took an incredibly long time to get out, partly because, of course, he wanted to get out. But it, it just struck me there were a load of interesting circumstances about that. One is that what an intense time he was living through. He recorded Blonde on Blonde in February, in January and February. Very fraught sessions, you know, four o'clock in the morning, sad-eyed lady, Bob Johnson, etc. He'd just done a 46-day tour of the world. 46 dates in Australia, in Sweden, in Europe. And this is the Judas moment. This is the Albert Hall. This is the this is Manchester, you know. This was the Don't Look Back documentary. So he'd made the, the, they'd done the film. He'd come back to, to Woodstock, where he lived at the time, at the end of May. Uh, Blonde on Blonde was released on the 20th of June. And at that time, he just had a huge number of things hanging over him. He had to finish Tarantula. He had a publishing deal, and he had to get this book finished, Tarantula. He had to make a new album. He had a new tour uh, set up, which I didn't actually know about. I had a look at it. He was going to play Shea Stadium on August the 13th. Wasn't that amazing? Wow, good he was going to go to Russia. He would have been the first ever rock musician to have played in Russia. This is with the same band, with the, with the touring band, with the, with the, with the band. Effect, you know. He was playing the Festival of Roses in Rome. He had all this stuff there. And he was absolutely knackered and just wanted to get into family life. And then he went for the, for, to, on the, out on the motorbike, on the Triumph. And Sally Grossman and Albert Grossman, his manager, were following in the car a little way behind. They came around the corner. There he was on the road. And Sally Grossman said, uh, she said he was kind of moaning and groaning, but he didn't look that injured. And, you know, for someone who's meant to have broken his neck and all this, he didn't go to hospital. He went to a doctor an hour away, which is in itself pretty extraordinary, and he convalesced for a bit. Robbie Robertson claimed that he had seen him in a neck brace. There are no indications this is, this is true at all. And as far as I can see, the only, the only reporting of this story was a two-sentence mention in the New York Times, which was headlined, Dylan Hurt in Cycle Mishap. And then eventually Melody Maker on the 13th of August saying, Dylan has broken neck vertebrae. Oh, that was really interesting. And, and, and it also began this period where he was really out of the public eye for quite a long time. Yeah. You think how intensely he was in Well, it, it seemed well, actually, a long time at the time, didn't it? Because it really did seem a long people time. Did, it, people didn't disappear in those days. No, they didn't disappear. And this was the summer of love. You've got to remember the summer of love. You'd think he'd be right at the... He, well, he wasn't. The only thing he no, did was John wasn't. Wesley Harding, which had nothing. It was the, he'd gone in the furthest possible yeah, direction, absolutely. the opposite way with John Wesley Harding. I don't think he released anything at all in 1968. Nashville Skyline... He said, you know, and he did play the Isle of Wight because there was so much money involved. Self-portrait. These weren't kind of, they weren't fully realised records, really, were they? New Morning, sort of. Made the Pat Garrett film. Then there was the Dylan album, which is a contractual fellow in So He didn't really reappear till 1974. So I thought that was quite interesting, really. I just I, how little we knew about him and how little we knew about what had happened. And also, we still don't know. Now, we don't know really what happened. It, it, it was obvious that there's a bit where there's a, there's a newspaper article I found where uh, Grossman is apologizing for the fact that he can't play at an Italian festival. And he says, um, he says, uh, my client will not be available again until March 1967. 
This was in August 1966. So he decided to say to the outside world that he wasn't going to be available. But it's interesting, isn't it? I love, I love, these, I love these things that are still mysterious after all this time. You see, that is the genius of, of the greatest sustained mystique in popular music. Yeah. And that's all the product of him sticking rigorously to the policy of never apologize, never explain. Yeah. Since 1963. Yeah. That's the way he's been. Yeah. And, and keeping that kind of distance yeah. has stood him in such good stead. Whereas everybody else, you know, something goes wrong in their career. They, they go rushing to the microphone. They rush to they go to the, it. go to the sofas, as they used to say in the yeah, days absolutely. of Oprah Winfrey or whatever. I have to go and explain. You yeah. don't make anything any better at all. You don't. Know? Whereas, and I also, the, I like the idea that Grossman used to refer to him as my client. Yeah, that's no, great. <laughs> it's not like Brian Epstein. He didn't talk about the boys. No, my client. I know, no, it's good. Got a rather, rather wintry tone about it. That has, I know. It suggests that you, there'll be a huge lawsuit if you if you yeah. speculate about uh, about but, but what exactly. he's been up to. By not doing anything at all, it just makes it more. It's just like like, like in recording the 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 uh, the music for a sort of Victoria's Secrets lingerie. Yeah, it just. Where, yeah, he just didn't say anything about it. So we no. don't know to this day whether he did it because it was just it amused him or because it was really good money or it was just being ironic. Well, it, it'll be all of those but It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he was. It's just him being him. You can't possibly explain any of it. And the worst possible thing to do is talk about it. Yeah. No, I didn't. This, you know, the, the, the time it takes to use to take news to travel. Yeah, I've quoted this before. When Jim Morrison died in Paris in 1971, yeah, it took two weeks for that news to be published in the UK. Yeah, because first week, Melody Maker published the story saying we've heard, yeah, that Jim Morrison may have died, kind of thing. We'll confirm it or not in due course, and it wasn't a little until a week later. Yeah, and I think. The news only got to Morrison's people in LA via the Melody Maker. You know that, Is that, that right? yeah, that that kind of um, yeah, that that, that this, Los Angeles and Paris seemed so far seemed so far apart in those days. You know, yeah. things nowadays. You know, they they um, well the famous the case. I'm sure I've talked about this before. Whenever it was, whenever when Amy Winehouse died, and that was a Saturday afternoon, and and I was just sitting watching, I don't know, racing from Utoxita or whatever. Yeah. And uh, and I had my phone and uh, Twitter open, and somebody I follow say, is this true about Amy Winehouse? And I thought, well, I have no idea what that, what that means. And so I just, I just searched Amy Winehouse. And my screen was just racing past me. You know, people all over the world, you know, uh, people who knew nothing and people who did know something, people who lived nearby or whatever. And so I knew with certain, with pretty certain that that she died hours before the BBC were able to confirm it. Well, fair enough. I'm not suggesting the BBC should have should have jumped the gun or anything like that, you know. But uh, you just realised that um, it was a, it was a 
extraordinary example of just how news travelled in a fundamentally different way nowadays. Well, uh, social media is how I've discovered all those. It's the first time you ever hear that anybody's ever died. It's nearly always social media, isn't it? It's first time. Otherwise, what television programme is going to be interrupted for it or or, um, radio programme? Beyond that, it's the first place you hear about literally everything. Literally everything. You know, the notion that there could ever be an announcement, an official announcement about, I don't know, the fall of a government or whatever, that it would ever be first of all broken on a news bulletin is nonsense. It wouldn't happen anymore. It would be broken on social media. If only three minutes before, it would be. But it would still be first. Exactly. They would still be first. Yeah, yeah. That's just the way it works, you know. Um, yeah, it's very, it's very, it's very different from, but I think you're right that, you know, I think it's intriguing that, um, uh, Grossman and his wife turned up in the car and there's, there he is lying out there, there on the road, but they've never, they've never seen it happen. I know. I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, if he really had broken his neck, how could he possibly have not gone to a hospital? He went to a doctor an hour. They drove him for an hour to a doctor who allowed him to recuperate for a bit. So the general feeling is there wasn't an awful lot wrong with it, but they just thought, let's come to an agreement. Let's get out of all these things. He had a TV special he had to do. You know, all these things hanging over him. He just thought, I can't take this anymore. I just can't, you know. And, you know, having seen, you know... um, don't look back at that time. You can see what he was going through. You know, strong yeah, out he was. You know. uh, it was amazing. I, 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 you really admire him because you know the amount of pressure on him to keep himself in the limelight and to not worry about his reputation receding, and yet he's for six years he pretty much went onto the back foot, didn't he? Yeah, he did. and then came back with stuff like Blood on the Tracks and eventually yeah. Rolling Thunder. Rolling Thunder was the, was the big return. Yeah. Amazing. So. Um, no, Rolling Thunder is not the big return. Surely, it's the, well, the tour. The... the tour with the band. The tour with the band. Oh, the seventy-four Rolling... tour. That's right. Seventy-four before, tour. That's before, the one. Yeah. It was. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, um, what was I going to say? We can't finish without uh, wishing Mick Jagger a happy eightieth birthday. Well, right, eighty. I know. <laughs> it's just extraordinary, isn't it? I love it. I, I love find it. the idea of Mick Jagger being eighty just. Just kind of strange and amusing, don't you? Was it Mick Jagger himself who couldn't imagine doing it beyond the age of 40? Or was it he, just everybody Mick else? Mick Jagger, no, Mick Jagger said it himself. He, um, I think he said at one stage, oh, well, I won't be doing this one on 35. And then later on he said, oh, well, I'll be doing this one on 40. Yeah, yeah, And then yeah. when he was 40, he said, oh, I won't be doing this one on 45. And then just stopped talking about it really, you know. And... Um, and he had, he had a party, didn't he? He had a couple, a couple of parties this week. Sadly, I couldn't go, you know. <laughs> but, um, um, and, uh, yeah. Do you remember those headlines? They used to have headlines, that they, you know, 40 years ago. So the combined age oh, of the Rolling Stones is 186. They, they've done they that. Go? They've done that since they were all about 26. I know, I know, I know. It's, it's one of the most overplayed ideas, isn't it? it is. But... Um, I did think it was extraordinary that there he is, apparently hailing the hearty. And then the same week, did you notice, did you see the, the footage of Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, uh, doing a press, and, he, and he's 81, uh, doing a press conference in a corridor in the Senate where he just blanked out. He just 
completely stopped talking. He just, he had a... Well, a senior moment. Yeah, more than a senior moment. More than a senior moment. This is live, you know. Jesus. And was led away by other senators. And then they apparently recovered and kind of came back and did did something, did some kind of performance. And you just thought, my God, this is... This is the world we're in now. <laughs> it is. 80-year-old eighty-year-old rock stars. I know. And they, what's Joe Biden? Is he Joe 80? Biden? No, he's going to be, if he gets re-elected, he will be 80, won't he? I think he's in the late 70s. I mean, it's unbelievable. It is. And I D- think... Dylan, I, there's a bit of footage of Dylan taking a bit of a stumble on stage recently. I don't know if you saw that, where he trips up, pretty much falls into the piano. You think, oh, my Lord. <laughs> it's going to be, he's going to be doing the whole set sitting down soon. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.